We're going to be in the book of Judges. Judges uh, is in what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the first half of the Bible. Judges is the seventh book. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Now, I think it's fair to say that Judges is a particularly challenging and difficult book to read. And apart from the stories of people like Gideon and Samson, uh, perhaps Hannah, uh, it's a book that uh, Deborah, sorry, that many Christians are relatively unfamiliar with. But as a church, we believe that the whole Bible is the Word of God, and that even books like Judges speak with unnerving relevance to our lives and our culture today. In fact, uh, as we work through this book uh, over the next two or three months, I think you might be slightly surprised by just how much it has to teach us. You see, the book describes uh, a landscape uh, pretty similar to our own. For starters, that the people of God are living in this society surrounded by people who worship a whole bunch of different things. And so they're constantly being tempted to kind of fit in with the practices and the beliefs of the people around them, to simply go along with what the culture tells them. And as a result, they regularly needed these leaders to come along and remind them who they really were, to remind them uh, of God and God's ways, what God has done for them, and who they are in relation to all of that. Now really, when you strip it all back, the book of Judges is a a phenomenal book about the grace of God. It's about God offering his grace to people again and again and again, people who don't deserve it, people who aren't particularly looking for it, people who certainly don't appreciate it once they get it. And it's also about our desperate need for a saviour, that in spite of all of the ways that God forgives us and all of the ways that God provides for us, all the ways that God comes alongside and helps us, all the ways God delivers us, all the ways God sends his people good leaders, nothing really can overcome our tendency towards things like selfishness and pride and going our own way, turning our backs on God. And so in the end, the last line of the book of Judges, it says this, there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Pretty bleak ending to the story. We'll we'll get there in, or just before Christmas actually, so a a cheery little end to the year that will be. Uh, But in short, uh, Judges uh, paints this picture, pretty graphic picture really, of uh, the sin in our lives, certainly our desperate need for a saviour, someone to rescue us, and ultimately the salvation has got to be by grace and by grace alone. All that being said, by way of introduction, let's dive straight in, take a closer look at the first couple of chapters of Judges. And yes, your ears did not deceive you. We're going to deal with two whole chapters this morning, working through it at quite some pace. So here we go. The book opens like this. Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, just pause there. 
I said I'd move through it at quite some pace, but we will pause there. Uh, we will catch up as time goes on, I promise. But Joshua, you may remember, uh, had been this mighty leader, this mighty warrior who led Israel into Canaan, the promised land. And he'd seen all kinds of great victories, like the miraculous taking of Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down, the people of God entered in and inherited the land. But after Joshua died, there were still large swathes of Canaan yet to be conquered. And so the Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites? Verse 2, the Lord answered, Judah, for I've given them victory over the land. And things started out pretty well. When the men of Judah attacked, the Lord gave them victory over the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and they killed 10,000 enemy warriors at the town of Bezek. Adonai Bezek, however, escaped. Adonai is another word for king, so the king of Bezek escaped. But the Israelites soon captured him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Adonai Bezek said, I once had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. Now, if you just allow me to digress for a moment, uh, there is more in the story that we'll get on to that yeah, uh, maybe has more to say to us, but I must just say something about that chunk. I think one of the problems people sometimes have with the book of Judges is they ask, how could God send Israel to conquer people like that? I mean, this very much looks to me like an unjust religious crusade. Why on earth are passages like this even in the Bible? Well, if you're thinking that, that's a pretty good question. But let me at least point out to you Adonai Bezek's perspective on this whole pretty gruesome ordeal. Notice how he doesn't say, God, this is so unfair. doesn't say that. He says, God has paid me back for what I did to others. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 18 passages that I'm sure you're very, very familiar with, uh, but I'll fill you in just in case. God made clear to Israel that he was driving the Canaanites out because of their excessive wickedness. So these weren't innocent people that Israel was cheekily stealing land from. No, they were cruel and wicked people that God was bringing his judgment upon, and Israel was his chosen instrument of justice. Maybe you're thinking, well, that still sounds to me like an incredibly dangerous mindset. I mean, people taking on themselves the mantle of God to be his instruments of justice, wiping people out, and that's true. People who adopt that mentality today commit horrific acts of injustice and genocide. The difference is Israel had a very clear mandate, very clear instructions from God, and God simply doesn't do that anymore. You see with the coming of Jesus at the beginning of the New Testament how God begins this new way of working into his world. Jesus came, didn't he, on a saving mission, and those who follow him today are to participate in that saving mission. Jesus didn't take life, he laid his life down. And so those of us who follow him today are not his instruments of judgment on the world. Now we're told, aren't we, to show mercy to others. We lay down our lives, we don't take other lives. Now of course, it is true 
that one day, at the end of time, Jesus will return and he will ultimately bring judgment to the world. But between now and then, our role is to dispense mercy, not judgment. We leave judgment in his hands. It's not our place to exert that judgment in the world. Now, maybe you're still not satisfied by that. Maybe you're thinking, but surely in these conquests, in passages like this one, that there are a whole bunch of innocent people affected by it. What, what, what's that all about? And it's true. Innocent people sometimes do get caught up in judgment. But that's not just something that happens in Judges. Not something just that happens in the Bible. It happens all the time today. For example, if a man cheats on his wife or perhaps cheats in his business and he ends up tragically losing his marriage or losing his job, you you might stand back and look at him and say, well, in all fairness, I think he brought that on himself. And perhaps you'd be right. But what about the rest of his family? What about his kids? Although they're perhaps innocent bystanders, they end up suffering as a result of the sins of their father. Now look, there are multiple different ways that the Bible goes about answering those kinds of issues and questions of why God allows the innocent to be caught up in someone else's judgment. But one thing it assures you is that before the throne of God, absolutely everyone receives full, complete, and perfect justice, and that what we inherit in eternity will make anything we experience in our earthly life seem rather trivial. Now, I don't know if this will help, but think about it like this. Imagine that the inland revenue overcharged you by a pound. They took an extra pound in tax from you, and you felt really indignant about this, and so you decide to give them a call, and you're left on hold for several hours, but you persist, you hang on in there, and eventually they they take the call, and you complain, and as a result, they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to release you from any future obligation to pay income tax the rest of your life. You would probably say that on the whole, Your interaction with the HMRC, although highly unlikely, was fairly positive, wouldn't you? Yes, you would. A few nods. A few people, suddenly you're listening. I mean, is Jonathan about to tell us how to make this happen? No, 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 it's just an illustration. While you may have complained at the time that the Inland Revenue had overcharged you, when all is said and done, you're not going to spend a whole lot of time complaining that you were treated unfairly if they respond in that way. Now, my point is simply that at the end of the day, we can all rest assured that before the throne of God, no one will have any grounds for complaint whatsoever. Everyone will receive perfect justice from God. And I know that doesn't answer it fully, but hopefully it at least gives you a place to start. Let's get back to the story. Verse 19. The Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. Well, that kind of makes sense, right? 
I mean, these iron chariots, they were the equivalent of the tanks of the ancient world. Just a a few of these chariots could mow down hundreds of foot soldiers, and foot soldiers was all that Israel had. And so Israel had a pretty reasonable excuse for not driving them out. And so verse 27, the tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in Beth Shan, Tanakh, Dor, Ibleem, Megiddo, and all their surrounding settlements. Why? Because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. It's like they refused to budge. They were pretty stubborn about remaining where they were. And so eventually the Israelites say, okay, here's the deal. We won't bother you if you promise not to bother us. However, verse 28, when the Israelites grew stronger, They then forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, which is kind of a win-win. I mean, instead of doing what God has said and driving them out, they end up getting some free labor out of them into the bargain. Tim Keller, who wrote an excellent commentary on Judges, which I will probably refer to more than once before this series is out. He says, taken on its own terms, chapter one of Judges reads like a collection of Israel's press releases about their campaign. It's their spin on why they weren't quite as successful as we and God might have expected. As we read, we're lulled into sympathy with the Israelites. When we're told that they could not drive out the Canaanites, we are inclined to agree they did their best. But then comes God's assessment. Chapter 2, verse 1. I, says God, brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. You can hear that, and you think, vaguely interesting. But I am struggling to see what relevance this has to my life today. Well, there's a passage, a verse in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, where Paul is looking back on the story of God's people, the the people of Israel, and he says, referring to passages like this one we're in today, he says, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So, this story is an important example for us. Somewhere in this story, there is a warning from God that we would do well to heed. So, what can we learn from this story? Well, there are three lessons you'll be surprised to hear that I want to draw out of this story. Here's the first one. Small areas of disbelief produce large areas of disaster. Small areas of disbelief end up producing large areas of disaster. These Canaanites, the the people of God left in the land, if you read on, you see they end up becoming this thorn in the Israelite side. 
become uh, a source of constant aggravation, irritation, and warfare. Eventually, some of them would rise up and overcome God's people. And so, Israel's response to God was, God, we, we, we just couldn't drive them out. I mean, it, it was way too hard for us to do. But God says, actually, it's not that you can't, it's more a case that you won't. It has nothing to do with you not being strong enough because it's never been all about your own strength. It's all about you not being confident enough in God's grace to you. So here's a question. I think we should all ask ourselves on a regular basis, where are we saying, I can't, but God says, actually, it's more a case that you won't. You know, perhaps it'd be helpful if you started looking at your own life like the unconquered territory of the promised land. You just look at those areas of your life where you feel like, I just can't obey God there, and realize that where you say can't, God perhaps says won't. So where are you saying, I can't, and God says you won't? Here are a few potential areas by way of example, just to to get your thinking. Maybe it has to do with your integrity. You say, well, God, if I were totally honest in my job, I'd end up losing it. I mean, you just can't be expected to play fairly in this particular field and survive. Maybe it has to do with extending forgiveness. Like, God, I know I should forgive him. God, I know you want me to forgive her, but I just can't. It's too hard. Maybe it's avoiding some kind of sexual temptation. Like, I know it's wrong, but I just can't say no. A lot of times people end up falling into the trap of rationalizing their behavior, twisting the Bible to fit their preferences. Surely the Bible can't say this is wrong because God wants me to be happy, right? Or this is just who I am, it's the way I'm wired, or but I really love them. Maybe that compromise is being in a relationship you know in your heart of hearts you shouldn't be in. Over the years, I've known scores of people get in or stay in relationships that really in their heart of hearts they know they shouldn't be in because, well, God, I'm just afraid of being lonely. I think one of the most common areas of compromise is to do with money. It's like, God, I can barely afford things as it is. I mean, how on earth do you expect me to give generously? Listen, all of these are like mini Canaan's that the enemy sets up in our hearts. They're areas where you say, but God, I, I just can't. But God says, no, it's just that you won't has nothing to do with your inability to obey. Ultimately, it's because you are not confident enough in my strength. And tragically, more often than not, these areas that we compromise in, just give away a bit of ground in, they end up becoming areas of defeat in our lives, where the enemy brings cursing, where he piles on condemnation, where he brings chaos into your life. Now, here's the thing. All along, Israel's problem wasn't really that they just stopped being religious. 
No, they'd simply cease to walk by faith. I think there's a huge difference between those two things. Because the mark of walking by faith is full and absolute and unconditional and uncompromising obedience. Listen, Israel's compromise, and perhaps ours as well, normally starts with a failure of belief. In fact, all sins somewhere start with a failure of belief. And these small areas of unbelief become larger areas of disaster if they remain unchecked. Again, you've got to start seeing your life like the unconquered promised land of Canaan. It's like looking in small crevices of your heart, or perhaps your own little Canaanites of unbelief and sin. And you've got to go to war against those areas. You've got to bring them into line with the truth of the gospel. You need to preach the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done into every part of your life, your worries, your anxieties, your goals, your dreams, your ambitions, your temptations, your insecurities, your needs. You have to drive forcefully the enemy out of your heart because those areas of unconquered territory become the means by which the enemy eventually enslaves you. Which is exactly what we see happening as we read on in this story. Verse 12, the people of God abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshipping the gods of the people around them. Verse 14, this made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. And so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around and they were no longer able to resist them. It's like Israel started to go after the gods of the people around them and then those people turned around and enslaved them. Which leads me to my second point. We get to choose regularly and often between the God who saves and gods that enslave. We have choices to make between the God who saves and the gods that enslave. I think if there was ever a place in the Bible that demonstrated that sin leads to slavery, this passage is surely it. It's like you give yourself to an idol because it it promises you power and security and freedom. Incidentally, if you, if you want a description, if you want a definition of an idol, that's it right there. An idol really is anything that, that promises you power, that promises you freedom, that promises you happiness and security separate from God. What it eventually does is put you in chains. Like money says, I, I can give you power. If you have me, I can give you freedom. And so you chase after it. You never quite seem to have enough, and it ends up further down the line, kind of having a negative effect on your family, perhaps your integrity, perhaps your health. It's always demanding that bit more from you. It promised power and freedom and happiness, but you're never satisfied. You're perhaps finding yourself jealous of others, constantly worried, exhausted. I tell you, that is not the life of someone who is free. It's the life of a slave. Or you give your life to build your reputation, 
Because you think that then you'll have power and freedom and security. If you could just walk into the room and impress everyone, then you'd be secure. But again, it has the opposite effect. You become really sensitive to criticism. You're obsessive of what people think about you. You're always bitter that people don't recognize your full worth. Again, this isn't the life of a free person, it's the life of a slave. Now in contrast to these false gods that enslave them, Judges gives you this glimpse into the heart of Israel's God, the one true God. We see it in verse 14, this, Israel's behavior, made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. And so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. And the people were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Again, just three things very quickly in those verses that I think reveal to us something about God's heart of passionate love towards His people. What do we see here that illustrates God's love for us? Well, first of all, His anger. Thinking, have I just misheard something? I mean, I, I, I thought you were talking about God's love. What, where, where does anger fit in? I mean, this this might not strike you as particularly loving, but make no mistake, God is righteously angry at sin, and that's because God is a jealous God, and He is jealously angry when we betray Him, because uh, jealousy is a necessary part of love. You see, when you love something or you love someone passionately, you tend to be jealous for their affection. You know, sometimes people don't understand God's jealousy because they just always think of jealousy as something bad, like you're simply miffed when someone has what you want, or you're insecure and obsessive over having someone's attention. That's bad jealousy. But there's also a good jealousy, a jealousy that's a natural part of love. For example, I'm righteously jealous of the affection of Helen, my wife. I want her affections to center on me and not some other man, which I think is as much for her good as it is for my good. Obviously, it's, it's possible to overstep the mark. It's possible to be way too obsessive about that. But that's not what God does. God is jealous to be our only God, to be our only real object of worship. And He does that because He's passionately in love with us. And he knows ultimately what's good for us. Listen, the opposite of love isn't anger, it's apathy. If God didn't love us, he simply wouldn't care, he wouldn't be bothered. But because he loves us, there's this righteous jealousy that he extends towards us that means when we betray him, when we go our own way, when we ignore him, there's this righteous anger. So God's angry, but then do you notice what happens next? He sees his people in distress, and verse 18 says, the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. He feels pity. It moved God at an emotional level to see his people hurting and in pain, even when they'd brought that suffering on themselves and they weren't really sorry for it. It's like me seeing the pain of one of my children suffering, even when I know it's their own fault. It doesn't make me stop loving them, if anything, it makes me love them even more. 
So God sees their distress. He feels pity. And even before their repentance, thirdly, he acts in salvation. Verse 16 says, he raises up judges to rescue them. And really, that sets us up for the rest of the book of Judges. But what we're going to see as we work through this book over the next couple of months or so is these judges, these leaders of God's people, will turn out to be broken people themselves. That they fall prey to the same problems that Israel had. They're inconsistent, they're unbelieving at times, they're pretty cowardly, that they're greedy, they can be rash, even immoral. And so the question that emerges from the whole book of Judges is this, how can these men and women be Israel's saviors when they themselves need to be saved? You know, I think that's the problem with all earthly saviors, whether it's in the world of politics, business, sport, or whatever. Basically, they all suffer from the same two main problems that face us all. The problem of having a sinful heart and the inevitability of death. We're all going to die one day. It's coming for all of us. Ultimately, the only person who can be a true saviour to me has got to be free of those two problems. They're going to have to live a sinless life and they've got to be able to conquer death. And you can probably see where I'm heading with this. There's actually only one person in all of history who can tick those two boxes, and that's Jesus Christ. And so the book of Judges, it it points to the story of another greater judge, another greater saviour. Now through it all, the writer of Judges is setting you up to choose between those two types of saviour to choose between those two types of God, the gods that enslave or the only God that can save. Gods that leave you in chains, enslaved, or a God that pursues you in love like a caring father or a caring husband. Of course, some people will just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, I don't see why I've got to choose any. I mean, I'm not religious. I I can't see how this relates to me. But as I've often explained, the human heart doesn't actually give you that option. At heart level, you are instinctively a worshipper of something. You, You can no more turn off your drive to worship by not being religious than you can turn off your sex drive by remaining single. Your soul will always find something to cherish, something upon which to build your identity, something you've determined will give you happiness and power and peace and security. So the question isn't if you'll worship, it's what you'll worship. If you give yourself to money, if you give yourself to fame, if you give yourself to romance, if you give yourself to your family, if you give yourself to the pursuit of respect or whatever, you will end up becoming a slave to those things. But give yourself to God, and I can guarantee you will find the most satisfying, the most freeing, the most forgiving love ever known. Tim Keller told you I quote him more than once in this series. He says, Jesus is the only God who, if you find him, will satisfy you. And if you fail him, 
will forgive you. And if you run from him, will pursue you. Which brings me to the third and final thing that I think these chapters teach us. Spiritual forgetfulness eventually leads to faithlessness. Spiritual forgetfulness leads to faithlessness. Notice in chapter 2 verse 1 that when God confronted them, he said, look, I, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors, and I said I would never break my covenant with you. But then down in verse 10 comes the staggering statement, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Now that's odd, isn't it? I mean, this generation never heard of the Passover or the splitting of the Red Sea or the falling of the walls of Jericho. Of course they'd heard about it. I mean, they, they would have been familiar with the stories, but they didn't make any difference to them. They, they didn't remember them in any meaningful way in day-to-day life. It's like these things weren't precious to them. That's why God starts by reasoning with them. He says, look, I rescued you from captivity in Egypt. If I could do all of that, why wouldn't you then trust me with these much smaller things? If I could split the Red Sea so you could walk through in safety and defeat the might of the entire Egyptian army in the process, don't you think that I might help you overcome these small little bands of people left in the land? Now let me ask you a question. Maybe you need to go away and reflect on this one. Why would you trust God with your eternal salvation but not trust Him in your day-to-day life? If you genuinely believe He paid for your sin, if you believe He has eternity taken care of for you, surely it makes no sense that you wouldn't then trust Him with your finances or in your relationships or in your marriage. Well, you wouldn't trust him with your parenting or when you're at work with your job, your career, or any other things that, I guess, vex and concern us in life. I mean, a God you can trust with your eternity is surely a God you can trust with your budget. A God that paid for your sin, you can trust with your emotional needs. A God that has overcome death, you can surely trust with your future. I mean, if he did the greater thing, surely he will also do the lesser. So you need to remember what he's done and live consistently. Because be warned, spiritual forgetfulness eventually leads to faithlessness. Now before wrapping this up, let me just very quickly address those who are parents in the room. In one generation... In this story, we, we, we see we go from a people who saw God knock down the walls of Jericho to a generation that doesn't know God at all. That's how quick things can change. Parents, you have a crucial role in ensuring your children don't grow up ignorant of God. I want to ask you, what are you teaching your children But what are they learning about God from you? 
Because ultimately, you're the ones who are going to show them what it means to love God, what it means in day-to-day life to live for Him, to trust Him, to honour Him. Do your kids see the importance of God in the things you prioritise? Because you might say one thing with your mouth on a Sunday, but the example of your life the rest of the week sets up a model of what's of most importance. Really, the Bible couldn't be clearer. Spiritual forgetfulness produces faithlessness. This is a sobering passage. Another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Parents, please, do everything you can to ensure that is not true of your family. Of course, ultimately, the the salvation of your kids, that lies in the hands of God. That is not on you. But you do still have a responsibility to bring them up in the ways of the Lord to teach them what it is to trust him and honour him, to model something of that with your own life. And for those in the room who are children, or to put it another way, those in the room who have parents, if you look back on your life and you think, well, in some way my parents did do this for me. They, they did sow some seeds in me that have resulted in me growing in faith. If you think that in any way your parents have helped you in your walk with God, why don't you thank them? Why don't you this week get in touch and say, look, I've just been remembering what you did for me when I was growing up. I just want you to know I really appreciate it. And I'm not saying your parents had to have been perfect, but if there's anything, even a grain, that they helped you in your walk with God, helped you get to where you are today, why don't you thank them? Because Parenting is a tough task, and any little bit of encouragement, I'm sure, will be gratefully received. Now, by way of conclusion, wrapping all of this up, chapter 2, verse 4, says that when Israel saw the damage they caused themselves and their children, they wept. The people were full of regret for what they'd done. But evidently, as we read on the story, they didn't repent because as we're going to see in future weeks, nothing really changed in their behaviour. And repentance always means making changes. Perhaps right now, some of you, even listening to this message, you're feeling regret. Listen, weeping is good. Repentance is better. Repentance means that things change. Repentance means you, you look into the unconquered territories of your heart and you go to war, bringing those areas into submission to Christ. Whether it's your dreams, your ambitions, your goals, your fears, your anxieties, your worries, you say, God, would you search me? Would you, would you show me where there are areas that I'm still not quite trusting you? And God, with your help, I, I'm going to choose to live in submission to what you say because ultimately in my heart of hearts, I trust that you're good and that you know best for my life. What does that look like for you? Are there habits you need to change? Are those areas where you need a resolve to obey God fully? Maybe it's getting your family involved in the life of the church, so that the church is less this kind of religious meeting you attend on a Sunday, more a community you belong to. What does this look like for you? Well, this morning... You get to make a choice that for whatever reason the people of Israel refused to make. A choice to actually follow God. A choice to see this victory that he wants to bring into every area of your life. But it starts with repentance.
It starts with the decision to change some stuff and to put your faith in him. And that's what I want to call you to do today.